Hi, everybody. Vanessa here. We have another special bonus episode for you today. This is in addition to our regular episode, not instead of. And what you're going to hear is an extended interview. As is probably obvious to you, I have the incredible opportunity of interviewing dozens of incredible professors and various experts Ariana Nettleman, our producer, does research on finding these professors and helps me prepare for them and then is in the recordings with me. So she's very much part of this process. And what I get to do is talk to just like the greatest minds (laughs) about their research and how it pertains to this project that we're doing with Live from Pemberley. So what you'll hear over the course of a season is several clips from my conversation with someone like Aisha Ramachandran or Tara Menon, but you'll hear those like highly edited across my opening essays. But what you don't get to hear is the back and forth that we have, the laughter, they're celebrating the joy of how much they love Pride and Prejudice and Jane Austen. But where you do get to hear those is on our Patreon. They are part of our $5 a month tier, our Kitty Bennett tier. And what we're going to play for you today is a sample of one of those conversations. This is a conversation that Ariana and I had with Claudia Johnson, who you hear from a lot. She is the first person who we interviewed for Live from Pemberley. And so this was at the very beginning of our research on Pride and Prejudice. And I remember where I was sitting, even though this was, I mean, months and months and months ago now, I was sitting, I was visiting my parents in California, so my audio is not great, and I was just having the time of my life talking to Professor Johnson, and she's just so brilliant. And what you'll also hear is not just her passion for Austin, but you'll hear what a wonderful teacher she is. She really wanted to know what Ariana and I thought, and she was so engaged, and she was so interested in learning more about Austin. And it's just a wonderful conversation about Jane Austen's personal life, about Pride and Prejudice, but also I think just with a brilliant professor. And so I hope that you enjoy this. And if you do, there are more interviews like this, extended interviews with our guest experts on our Patreon at patreon.com slash hot and bothered rom pod. And we have a goal of trying to get to a thousand patrons this month. We're close to 900 right now, but with your help, we can make this podcast financially sustainable and keep making it for another season. So we're really grateful for your support. We hope that you join us on patreon.com slash hot and bothered rom pod. And I hope that you enjoy this conversation between me and Claudia Johnson. Jane Austen is is amazing because um, she gives us our ordinary lives of meeting people, talking about people, having a meal and going to a dance. Not that I do that, (laughs) you know, but my students do. And, And then, you know, gossiping and trying to judge or assess people's true feelings or what are they thinking. You know, this is the stuff of our lives. And she gave that a kind of artistic dignity, I think. That's what her novels are. And, and a kind of moral dignity. This is, it's not War and Peace, but it's, it's just as good as War and Peace, you know, because it obliges us to take our lives seriously, I think. You think so too? 
Oh, yeah. I was just thinking about it this morning, you know, with the invasion of Ukraine that I was like, right, like war is happening and I'm just sitting here. I'm visiting my parents right now. And so I'm just sitting here worrying about my parents and we're going to go on a walk later. And I right, like in Jane Austen, there were wars in the background. But like when you're not on the front, like, what do you do? Right. You live your life and you follow. Right. You worry about your parents and you're exactly. I mean, it's still a part of your life. And of course, her brothers were were, you know, uh, you know, naval officers during those wars. So it's not as though it's not as though it didn't touch her. But it's true that the war isn't on her soil, but. Soldiers are there <laughs> and sailors right. are there, <laughs> you know, and in Pride and Prejudice, you know, um, you know, at Brighton, there's soldiers there. If you look at some uh, Victorian book covers of Jane Austen, you know, there's some with soldiers as well as women, you know, on the cover. It's just it's part of, of life. Well, can you just walk us through a little bit of what her childhood looked like? There's not a lot we really know about Jane Austen's life. And if people tell you otherwise, don't believe them. (laughs) I mean, there are some facts that you can juxtapose, but if you attempt to kind of impose a narrative to connect them, that's very dangerous. But she was born in 1775 to uh, a family of, um, well, distantly there are some minor gentry and, and even aristocrats on the mom's side. And the, the dad is um is a parson. They're very well educated. They are not landowners. And in that sense, they are not gentry. They rent. But that's a, a social difference that means a, a lot to people at, at the time. You know, he lives in a in a parish, you know, in a parsonage that the that the church supplies. He doesn't own property. So that you know, they're kind of hanging on. So they're often called pseudo gentry because they can mix with the gentry by virtue of their education, but they they don't have the money, and you know it's very um, obvious, particularly after the the father dies, that they have to figure out how they're going to get by. So you know it's a cultivated family, it's a, a literary family. We have the impression, of course, her, there's her sister whom she adores. Cassandra, and uh, and I think she loves her brothers too. There is a fact that's little discussed, and that is that one of her brothers had some sort of mental debility, as it would have been considered at that time. Was he deaf? Was he autistic? His name was George. I mean, people didn't have the same ideas about differently abled people at that time, so he was farmed out. He did not, you know, grow up with the family, though I do believe that they visited each other uh, occasionally. So, uh, but that's often airbrushed out of the out of the picture. And in Austin's letters, you really can't find any references to to him, and whether she did that or whether that was a posthumous cleaning up, it's 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 not. It's not clear. So the brothers, you know, go to Oxford. They start a literary journal there. Austin contributes to it. And it's it's very clear that uh, she's a better writer than there at the, at the outset, you know, because they, they have this kind of pompous style. And you can tell that when she uses the pompous style, as in it's a truth universally acknowledged, you know, <laughs> you can tell that she she's using it. She's not imitating it. 
you know, she's manipulating it and that she has an, an incredible ear even at uh, a very young age. So when she's growing up, starting uh, starting at about 11, she starts writing stories and, and writing them down. And some of them are just amazingly ribald and, uh, you know, full of suicide, murder, uh, multiple accepting multiple marriage proposals. There's even a reference to to homosexuality in one of the stories. I mean, you know, there's nothing that's off limits to the to the young uh, Austin. Do you want to hear a quote from one of those? Yes. <laughs> Don't you just love her? And when you consider that she's doing this uh, when she's um, 13, it's even more amazing. Okay, here's one. It comes from a a piece entitled Scrap. I murdered my father at a very early age of my life. I have since murdered my mother, and I'm now going to murder my sister. I have changed my religion so often that at present I have not an idea of any left. I have been perjured, a perjured witness in several public trials during this past 12 years, and I have forged my own will. In short, there is scarcely a crime that I have not committed. And then the last sentence is the real kicker. But now I'm going to reform. (laughs) I mean, she believed in reformation, though, right? That people can change? Yeah. This obviously is making fun of that idea. But I mean, I'm about to say something grossly oversimplistic, but that's sort of what the love story is, right, within Pride and Prejudice, is people can change for the better for one another. Yeah, that's true. Are they really changing or are they just becoming what they really are? You know, I guess that's the that's the thing. But but I like what you're saying about about Darcy in particular. You know, he changes. It's not just that she was wrong about him, though she was, but yeah. that's that's not the problem. <laughs> you know, she was right about his manners and about his unwillingness to be pleased with anybody. And he and he does change that. You're you're right. And I have this theory about about Jane Austen that that she really likes smart people. She likes people who can see themselves, you know, and, and only the people who can see themselves can change. And it's only the people who see themselves who can also feel pain. I mean, what makes Mr. Collins such a fabulous character? He's absolutely inhumiliable. You know, he, you know, is is so he cannot see how absurd he is. He cannot, I don't even think he can see that he's actually kind of violent in his refusal to hear Oh, it's like a Me Too movement. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it might be in a comedy, but, you know, you don't have to push too far to think about what not hearing no means, do you? And Lydia can't be humiliated either. You know, when she returns, she she's not embarrassed. She's not she's she's really pleased with herself. Right. Mrs. Gardner tries to humiliate her and she. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course, when Elizabeth realizes how wrong she is, she's totally humiliated. We have those long inner dialogues where she thinks, I can't believe how wrong I've been. Do you know? And, and he's angry and hurt and humiliated, too. And, and he changes. So it's only the people who can feel that wound of self criticism and accepting criticism from others 
And the people who, who can't feel any pain are not people we're interested in in the novel, I think. That's fascinating. So what do you make of Mrs. Bennett within that? Because she can feel pain, but not necessarily about her own behavior. She can feel worry. Do you feel, do you see that she's like, she doesn't realize what an idiot she's making of herself at the balls. Do you think she feels pain? That's very interesting. What do you think? I mean, she's so worried about Lydia that she's taken to her room and she'll only talk to Hill, right? Like, Well, that's true. She, Yeah. But she doesn't mind it when Darcy really bribes Wickham into marrying her. She doesn't seem to mind that she did what every good girl shouldn't do, you know, and that is have sex before marriage. She's not hurt by any of those things, is she? No, I agree. I, the generous reading that I have of Mrs. Bennett, right, is that she's truly afraid that her daughters will be homeless. I think there is, is something about Mrs. Bennett that we tend to overlook. And, you know, she worries about them more than Mr. Bennett does. And that sort of brings us up short when we, when we want to make fun of her, you know, and when we, you know, mock her because they will be destitute. <laughs> you know? Yeah, as soon as he dies. Exactly. And we see something like that in Sense and Sensibility, right? When, you know, and, and they're even of a higher social echelon and they are left with nothing except some furniture, which, you know, even that is resented by the people who take, who take over the, the estate. I think you're right. And that's sort of one of the ironies I try to get my students to to perceive in the opening sentence. It is the truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. And everybody reads that as making fun of Mrs. Bennett, who's the only one who appears to be worrying about marrying off her her daughters. Do you know it's not a universal truth, right? It's she thinks it's a universal truth. Uh, Mr. Bennett says, well, was that his intention in coming to the neighborhood to, you know, but, you know, it was. He is looking to settle down, right? Mr. Collins comes there in search of a wife. (laughs) Wickham, of course, he's not in possession of a large fortune, (laughs) but he certainly is looking for a wife who has one. Fitzwilliam is looking, you know, for a wealthy woman since he's a younger son and doesn't have the fortune. And I would argue, I would argue that even Darcy is, though he doesn't know it. Oh, I love that, that Mrs. Bennett is totally vindicated. Yeah, so, the, you know, there's that twist. And, you know, if you don't, the thing about Austin is she doesn't twist just once. Like, uh, that's a universal truth, but hey, it isn't. She twists again. And hey, wait a minute, <laughs> maybe <laughs> maybe it is. And And I think that's one reason we can read her so often with pleasure that, um... You know that there, there's always more of a twist that you never got the, the first time, that you can't take it all in at once, even though it seems small, you know, and short, and you can read it all, you know, in a short time, but yet you can never really grasp it all. It might as well be as as long as Middlemarch in, in some ways. I mean, what you just made me realize is that Jane and Mrs. Bennett have that in common: the desire to always see the best in people. Jane wants to see a general best, and Mrs. Bennett wants to see what's best for her daughters in people. That's nice. That's very nice. Yeah. And then there's 
Elizabeth, who <laughs> who generally looks at this on the sardonic side, and in that she she takes after her father, right? You know, and all of those views are subject to criticism as the novel, you know, rolls rolls along. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> it, it is good. I like you bringing up the Me Too movement because, um, I mean, Austin called it light, bright, and sparkling. But, you know, she actually didn't say light, bright, and sparkling. She actually said too light and bright and sparkling. <laughs> and and um, it, she became very famous with that, with that novel among people that it's important to be famous with. And, well, she said she wanted some shade in it. And it is the happiest of her novels. And if you, you know, know all of Austen's novels, it really is the most unusual in giving you such perfect happiness. But there are dark elements to to it. And, I mean, there's Mr. Collins. There's Charlotte. Remember Charlotte Lucas? Who has to marry him. And marry him with her eyes open. Do you know? Um, I think that's a very interesting, interesting thing. That Austin isn't really idealizing marriage or the need, you know, to, to get married. And her acceptance of Mr. Collins as a husband sort of causes a rift between those two friends. She really disapproves, but it's not clear that Jane Austen does. Do you know? I mean, the disapproval is never expressed by that narrator whom we know and, and you know, and, and, and love. I find that really interesting. You know, the, the need, you've got to do this because your brothers don't want to take care of you. Do you know, and then you think about Jane Austen, whose brothers had to take care of her. She, she had, you asked about the, the family. One of the brothers is, is well known, was adopted by a very wealthy family who didn't have a son. And he became enormously wealthy. I mean, truly, truly, you know, wealthy. He had many estates, some coming from his, the woman he married and some coming from the family that, you know, that uh, adopted him. And I can't help but feel that the stinginess that's expressed in Sense and Sensibility of the half-brother with the sisters, the two sisters, you know, the two smart-ass sisters, <laughs> you know, whom he thinks might be making fun of him all the time, and, and he's probably right, you know, I, I, and, who, and whom he thinks are somehow déclassé compared to the uh, social eminence he has, uh, has achieved. Uh, you know, I, I, there's, there's a lot of discord there that we, that we never learn about, but you can't Im- imagine that it's not there. So you asked what I thought about some of the um, modern uh, adaptations, and I, and I really don't like it, but Pride and Prejudice and Zombies is good insofar as it picks up on the potential for violence in Austin's novels and on the erotic nature of the, vi- of the repartee between uh, Darcy and Elizabeth. Do you know, I mean, they're, they're, they really insult each other. They really hurt each other, do you know? And yet that's how they're getting close to each other, actually, is by, do you know, well, you're pride, you're arrogant, and, you know, you, <laughs> and you think you're the smartest girl in the world, you know, they, they uh, and your family is really vulgar, do you know, they hurt each other. And there's, there's a way in which uh, that movie does represent that. I don't know if he intended to represent that, but he did. <laughs> 
Do you do you like that movie? Do you? So I just saw it for the first time, and I, there was just something so fun to me about watching the Bennetts as trained warriors. I loved it. I was like, yeah, right. Like looking on the marriage mart is like that's their life mission, right? And you need training for it. And so to watch them brandish their swords and be like such expert fighters, I found really thrilling. I, I agree. I mean, I don't know if he intended to be this smart about it. In fact, I think he intended to take the least plausible, you know, novel and match it up with a with a zombie story. But actually, there's something really smart because you have to be trained. Yeah. Not to be uh, overwhelmed and uh, taken advantage of, <laughs> you know, in the world. You have to learn how to, you know, to use your wit like a sword. And certainly, certainly Elizabeth does that. Oh, I'm so glad you like it because there's, there's an exuberance to Austin that, uh, that we lose sight of. You know, it's certainly in the juvenilia, you know, that woman bragging about all of her crimes. And in Northanger Abbey, which is very, you know, exuberant. Prime and Prejudice is exuberant. You don't get that much in the last three three novels. But but they are fun. And so they're not surviving because, you know, of English departments. They're surviving because people love to read them. I mean, you also get class in Pride and Prejudice and Zombies in terms of, right, like Caroline Bingley was trained in Japan. And the Bennett sisters oh, in lowly China, right, like. I was surprised by how fun I found it. And Wickham's betrayal I found interesting and Bingley's idiocy. And I, I also love that Lydia is properly kidnapped, isn't like Lydia is a, a brilliant victim, not an idiot. Yeah. That's interesting because there's a I don't know if you've saw the the dramatization, it was on PBS, I believe, of the PD James novel, um, what is it, Murder at Pemberley or something? something? Um, Death Comes to Pemberley. Which also redeems Lydia. It shows that her sort of fatuous banter is just a, a facade and that she actually does feel real pain. And it also picks up on, on some of the violence implicit in Pride and Prejudice, but then it comes out again after the marriage. So, so I, I think that that's a, it's a very interesting imaginative um, sequel. Yeah. The interesting thing about Jane Austen is that she speaks to many different constituencies simultaneously. I mean, she does now, indeed, and in the Victorian period, have a kind of mass market presence. Do you know? I mean, you you can buy Pride and Prejudice like in airport bookstores or, you know, you know, um, or supermarkets, do you know? And then she has what we might call um, an upper middle brow presence, you know, and and she has a, a scholarly presence, do you know? And, and rarely do these audiences intersect, except in the Jane Austen Society, which often, you know, invites you know, scholars to come and, you know, and, and talk to them. I mean, so the, the legacy, I think, for popular audiences is the uh, love story, no doubt, that she actually dignified the love story, that she gave it um, a plausibility, and, you know, and a dignity. And she, and she, she 
you know, she she made you really know both sides of the, you know, of, of the story. And she offered you a, a fantasy, at least, of happiness. I think for, for scholars, what she did was sort of create the modern novel, you know, because uh, if you read Jane Austen, you realize that all of the novels that came before aren't Jane Austen, you know, and that they become hard to read because of Jane Austen, that she developed a way of talking, and it's called free and direct style, you know, with a way of occupying somebody's thoughts and listening to somebody's thoughts as though they're having them and you're listening in on them, but also having a narrator who can come out, <laughs> you know, of that of that style and, and give you solid judgments or hints about what to think of this. So, you know, it has both. And the early, early novel doesn't have really, a, I mean, there are hints of it here and there, but it doesn't really have a way of telling you, of showing you what somebody is thinking. It can tell you what somebody thinks, but it can't really take you on the inside, you know. Uh, it can only have have somebody like Elizabeth Bennett say how how vain and wrong I have been, in quotations. But it can't give you the pages of thought that went up to her finally blurting that, that out. Um, so that, you know... That's an amazing achievement. You know, when we think of a novel sort of being about someone's interior life, she did that. So that's an amazing thing. And stylistically to have, you know, invented that is, um, you know, I, I just find it absolutely, you know, astonishing. So that's a legacy at the stylistic and sort of scholarly level. But, but, but it's not, but it's something we all know. You know, that all constituencies know that they might not have the language to describe it. So I think that's it. People, I think people love the story. And, and then there are debates according to different readerships about how important the story is. I mean, is Jane Austen really about love? Or is that just the scaffolding on which you tell a story that's actually not really about two people, but it's about all of the other people they they live with, you know, as they're having, you know, uh, the relationship. You know, read Sense and Sensibility. The ending is not happily ever after, you know. And in Northanger Abbey, which is sort of my favorite now, you know, it says on the, um, you know, second to the last page, well, reader, you can see by the telltale compression of pages before you. In other words, you can see there are only two pages left that I'm about, we're about to rush off to perfect felicity. That I have to give you the happy ending because the novel is going to end and you want a happy ending. And then she proceeds to invent all of these reasons how it could end up happily. Not, so she gives you the happy ending, but she gives it to you on terms that make you not believe it. Uh, <laughs> you know? uh, and, and that's sort of, you know, I think that novel is not really about falling in love. I think that novel is about learning how to be suspicious, <laughs> you know, learning how not to be naive. She starts out believing everyone and being perfectly transparent to everyone. And then she's, you know, taught a lesson, you know, her, her Henry teaches her a lesson and says, how could you have thought such things? And then we learn that, in fact, she thinks to herself, I, I really haven't exaggerated how bad the general is. In other words, Gothic is reaffirmed at the end. So they are love stories, but are they only love stories? And is a novel always about 
how it ends. That's that's a debate that different you know readerships have. I think she's actually a very difficult novelist because she she seems so transparent. It is a truth universally acknowledged, right? I mean, it's 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 right out there. Who who could have any doubt, you know, that you must be in want of a wife? It's a kind of an imperative, and then you. Then you are skeptical about it, and then you come back to it. Do you know that it's always it's always in motion? And I think that's what makes her fun and and hard. I am restraining myself from just having a conversation with you about Northanger Abbey. Oh my god! No, Ariana will murder me. It's the great learning how to set boundaries novel. To me, the center of the novel, I haven't read it in a few years, is when, like, she's essentially trying to be kidnapped by her friends. And they're, like, pressuring her and pressuring her. And she is just learning to be emphatic and be like, no, I have previous plans. That is, to me, the great turning point. It's not Henry. They're pulling her in, in both, you know, in both directions. So it's very gothic, actually. And then, you know, Thorpe kidnaps her. Yeah. So, you know, she doesn't realize yet the the gothic is relevant to her life. Do you know the gothic is what you read? And when you're in Bath, of course, nothing bad's going to happen. She learns that in fact she was being kidnapped. Yeah, and that people by kidnapping your time are kidnapping your life, right? But that's another, you know, n- not listening to know. Right. Exactly. Stop, Mr. Thorpe. Stop. Stop. And then you know that section ends. You know that she was powerless. No, it's heartbreaking and so funny. Can you tell me about Jane Austen's life, right? Like the great irony, love life, the great irony that the greatest writer of love stories ended up a spinster. She like had this theoretical 24 hour engagement. What do we know about her love life? Well, the fact is that she did not get married. So I'm, I'm just trying to give you the facts. <laughs> um, now, um, somewhere, I think, in the early 90s, she went to a ball and danced with an Irish fellow named Tom Lafroy. And she wrote about it and said, oh, we flirted shamelessly. And he did visit her, as you would do after a ball. And people think that she, th- and then he left town. <laughs> and people think, well, that she must have been in love with him. Otherwise, what else is there to do for a woman, you know, except to wish for this to happen? Later in life, and I think this was in about 1801, you know, a friend of hers, I think the brother of a friend of hers, asks her to marry him. She's older now. It's 1801. And she was born in 1775, so you can do the math there. She accepts, and then the next morning she retracts. There must have been a lot of pressure on Jane Austen, as there would be on Charlotte Lucas, (laughs) you know, know, as there would be on any woman to get married. And she must have felt this. Notice I'm saying must have. I, I can't imagine that she wouldn't have, but... When I'm saying must have, I'm, that is an assumption, do you know? Because uh, people always say, well, she wrote such great love stories. She must have experienced <laughs> it herself. But, but that is fiction making. You know, that, that is storytelling. 
The fact is, she said yes, and then she said no. And so we can only speculate that she didn't want to get married to him. I mean, to put it in the simplest possible terms, that's why she ret- she retracted. So um, why? I don't know. I mean, it would offer her and her sister and her mother and the um, other, um, um, there's another woman who lived, you know, with them. It would have offered them a livelihood. And we see, you know, we see Fanny Price get pressured, you know, in this way. Of course, she's much, much younger, you know. Uh, but when she's pressured, Sir Thomas says, well, think about, think about your family. Think about how you can, you know, help them. But evidently, that, that argument eventually did not, did not win. And I think what people, well, so, so people who think, that you know that she must have had this experience otherwise how could she have written about it you know basically believe that the novels are sort of a compensation an imaginative compensation for the for the love life she didn't have and that, that just sort of seems wrong to me though, though i think that is how like becoming jane austen reads uh, you know, when she sort of solemnly, you know, narrates it. The fact is, Joan Austen Aust- did have something else in her life, and that was writing, you know. And if you read the juvenilia or this, those early things in particular, you know she had a blast writing. And, I, I, you know, it worries me that people simply would read that as compensatory for amorous dis- disappointment. I think her life was very full. You know, uh, I think writing made her life very full. And, you know, in uh, several of the youthful pieces that she wrote, she signs her little un- introductions, the author. And that the Austin, even at 13, signed herself the author. Do you know, so I think that, um, you know, when she was a mature woman, I think she thought of herself as a writer. She certainly did when she was a young girl. Uh, You know, it's not as though she was saying no to return to a life of nothing. (laughs) She turned to a life that was that was very full. And and precisely because Austin, you know, looks out the window like like Emma, you know, and sees all of these things happening in, you know, in the village. That's a rich life. And so I I take a certain feminist uh, umbrage at the suggestion that there wasn't anything else to do. She, I think she, she loved being a novelist and she took it very seriously and also took great pleasure in writing. I love that reading. I have to confess, I don't know what Jane Austen must have felt. I can only see the results. <laughs> you know, I can only put those facts together. And after all, a lot of those flirtations that she writes about I, she writes about them with a, often with a certain degree of contempt, doesn't she? Yeah, I, I don't think she is is writing wishfully. Right, Caroline Bingley is the biggest flirt. I mean, other than Lydia, but yeah, and and all she does is is flatter Darcy, and this gets to back to my pain part. You know, Austin. I mean, Darcy doesn't want to be flattered. He, you know, he actually likes the repartee. He likes that that Elizabeth disagrees with him. I mean, it is true that Pride and Prejudice is one amazingly wishful plot where 
the rich people, the powerful people are also the smart people and the good people. And that's really not true in the other novels. <laughs> you know, the rich people in Sense and Sensibility are horrible. Um, you know, and I mean, the richest person in Austin's work is Mr. Rushworth, who's the biggest fool in, in all of the, you know, the novels. Lady Catherine de Berg and Caroline Bingley are rich and awful. So she has a mix. Yeah, Rushworth is a you know is adult. You know the rich people in in in, um, in persuasion are are thoroughly disagreeable. It's true that Wentworth gets money, but he's the only guy who actually works for a living in Jane Austen's (laughs) in novels. You know what makes a gentleman a gentleman is that you don't have to work. You know he actually earned his money on on booty from um from warships it's so interesting what you're talking about in terms of the violence um between darcy and elizabeth we've just come from reading jane eyre and so like this big topic of conversation is like kind of the sadomasochistic relationship between rochester and jane and like the the power play and how that is the the breeding ground for their romance and i i guess i'm wondering like neither of these really classic examples of romance novels are particularly like I don't they do they both have this violence at the heart of the love and and I'm wondering I guess how that fits into the historical context of of how romantic love is conceptualized in this moment good question I'm not sure I can tell you the truth really really answer it I mean Think about how the love story in, in Jane Eyre resolves, though. I mean, he's still called master at the end. But who's really controlling the house? Do you know? <laughs> you know, the, so the interesting thing about Pride and Prejudice is very reciprocal. Do you know? Um, and it's also not the only thing there is. Do you know? Um uh, you know, it seems to me that there's also in, in Pride and Prejudice, in addition to that, you know, ability that the, that the two parties have of really getting to each other, you know, is sort of kind of what intimacy is, isn't it? When you know somebody so well, you can do that. But of course, once you declare your love, you don't do that. But the point is you can, you know, do that. I think that... Uh, that Bronte's masochism is is somehow deeper. And I think that she's much more mm, invested in the love plot than Austen is. You know, much more invested both in, you know, idealizing Rochester and in also in and de-idealizing him and making him manageable. And he's manageable at the, you know, at, at the end. Whereas I think we have, at least I do, I'd be very interested to know what you think. At the end of Pride and Prejudice, I can, I can still see them, in, in not in a negative sense, quarreling, you know, um, you know conversing uh, in, you know, uh, in a way that they don't always agree. And, and and I think you know, very early in the novel, Darcy signals that that um, we can compare our different opinions. You know that he he actually doesn't he that the friction 
can be can be a source of pleasure. The friction doesn't have to be simply um, an opportunity for for pain. But I, you know, I do agree. It's that's mighty complicated. It's mighty complicated, um, and that's that's sort of the, the nature of the you know feminine love plot. You know, for a, you know for a long time is enduring those those hardships and finally getting rewarded. You know, with uh, with marriage, I don't think Austin has much truck with that though. You know, I think she she wants both to to give as good as they they get. Yeah. What do you make of Mr. Bennett? <laughs> that face. I wish there was audio for that face. This past time I read him, what well, I read the book a dozen times. I was like, he's just mean. I mean, his pleasure is making fun of people. His pleasure is laughing at, at, at others. Elizabeth participates in that to some degree, but not to that extreme degree. Here's my theory. I think Jane Austen had a great potential to be like Mr. Bennett, you know, and I think that she felt certain moral qualms about taking pleasure in um, making fun of people or looking down, you know, at them. I think she's kind of uncomfortable with the kind of hurtful potential of wit, you know, uh, um, and, and her novels sort of go back and forth on it. You know, um, in Mansfield Park, wit and punning comes in for a lot of, a, a, a lot of very searching discussion, you know. And in Pride and Prejudice, uh, Darcy says, well, you know, no man will be safe if your first object in life is to make fun of him or make him the object of a you know, object of a, of a joke, that there have to be sort of limits. Emma hinges on a witty comment, right? Like, that's the great dramatic moment, the mean witty comment. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, the dramatic moment is preceded by the phrase, she could not resist, you know? <laughs> you know? So this gets back, you know, to pain, too, you know, that there's something triumphant in putting somebody down or making a making a joke that that might might hurt them and she goes back and forth on it you know so and i again this is biographical projection on my part but it's a very consistent element of you know of her novels and you know just you know which is a source of of pleasure it's a source of self defense it can be uh, um, a, um, uh, you know, it can give great, great pain, and it can be completely irresponsible. And the Crawfords in uh, in in Mansfield Park have a certain irresponsibility about about their about their humor. I love, the, you know, at one point, uh, if only his rants were as long <laughs> as his rants. <laughs> what a difference a vowel makes somebody, <laughs> you know, do you know, um, uh, you know, if only had as much money as he has, you know, giving us his boring speeches, you know, that's, you know, it's a harmless pun, but Fanny, Fanny Price is, is scandalized, do you know, by, uh, by wit and by the irreverent potential 
of wit by the fact that you might make fun of serious things. And that's what Mr. Bennett does, right? He's making fun of his wife for wanting to marry off her daughters. But for her, the stakes are homelessness. And he is just laughing at her and, like, torturing her. Well, yeah. And what about his responsibility in the uh, Lydia scandal? I mean, he admits his responsibility, but uh, but he doesn't, you know, he doesn't, we don't really see him do much, you know, about that. He's very content to have Darcy, you know, save the day. So um, I think, uh, you know, wit can be a lot of things. And it can also be a guilty, uh, guilty pleasure. Uh, she does have have Elizabeth Bennet say, "I never make fun of what is good." Do you know, I you know, I do respect limits. You know, um, and, and we see Emma fail to to respect, you know, uh, you know, a limit. So I think I think he's kind of a for her for Austin. I think Mr. Bennet's kind of an experiment and sort of embittered wit, don't you think? Because there is something. Yeah, the embitterness about the youthful mistake of marrying the pretty girl. I mean, it's also such a foil for Elizabeth because she has to learn to sometimes take things seriously and, you know, not, and I, like, there's a way in which Mr. Bennett and Jane are kind of on the opposite sides of the spectrum where Jane assumes the best in everyone and Mr. Bennett just like delights in assuming the worst in everyone. His pleasure is in in assuming the worst and watching Mr. Bennett make an ass of himself. Yeah, the way he looks forward to Mr. Collins's letters, right? You're like... Yeah. It's also a kind of helplessness, don't you think? Because that's all he can do. Yeah, he's trapped in in a loveless marriage. Yeah. You'd think he might try to do more to provide for his, uh, you know, his daughters. He has one line, right, where he's like, I should have saved more. And I do find it tragic that, sorry, that they were counting on a boy. They were like, surely we'll have a boy. We're very fertile. It's not always easy, if you look at the social history, to produce an heir. Do you know? I mean, that's why Austin's brother got adopted. They didn't didn't have an heir, you know? Uh, yeah. Um, and yet, you know, there's no, and you can't give it to, you know, to to women. So it's not it's not guaranteed you're going to produce one. Yeah. This is a ninety degree turn. So I'm I'm sorry, but can you tell us a little bit about her relationship with Cassandra? Just because Lizzie's relationship with Jane is so central to the novel, and so I'd love to hear a little bit about Jane and Cassandra's relationship. We know that Cassandra adored her you know, her sister. And we know that she treasured all of the little relics that that Austin left, which were pretty pitifully few when she, you know, uh, when she died. Um, we know that Cassandra was somewhat uh, cooler and more reserved and, uh, uh, and, that, and that Jane was the more... Uh, expansive with her wit. So that does sort of match with the Elizabeth Jane, you know, paradigm. You know, they loved and trusted each other. She was the only one sort of really in on the secret of the composition of the the novels as they were, you know, um, uh, being developed. Uh, Well, I assume the mother was, you know, as well. She was with her sister when she died. You know, she closed her eyes. I mean, it's a very, 
um, it's a very touching story. She was the son of my life, you know, uh, and she lived a long time afterwards. I don't know. I don't know if I'm answering your question, but the point is that she becomes the first Jainite, treasuring these things, treasuring her literary, you know, reputation. She has the juvenilia. She has, um, you know, all of all of that stuff. Did she burn letters? If so, how many letters did she burn? That's that's we don't know because they're not there anymore. <laughs> you, know, um, uh, you know, so she she was under some pressure, I think, you know, from her her family to you know keep the family name, you know, uh, uh, pure. Uh, you know, you um, I don't I don't I don't really think I'm answering your question. I mean, they loved each other. They were sisters yeah. who who totally loved each other, and um, and I think that was you know a huge consolation for the for the two of them. Uh, and it was a great loss when when Jane died. And of course, um, then there's Henry, the kind of irresponsible brother who you know got bankrupt and you know, really uh, indemnified a lot of his family, a lot of his family who had invested in his um, in his bank. And the only reason Jane Austen was not bankrupt as a result, because she didn't put her money with him. She, you know, she invested, invested it elsewhere. So she, she, she still had a very small estate when she died. He, um, he sort of presented himself as her literary agent. And of course, he did you know, negotiate with, uh, you know, with uh, presses and, um, you know, publishers, I should say. And and that's the kind of work that Jane Austen would not have have done on her own. But he's also the one who spread the uh, the secret of her authorship, you know. And was was he just so proud that he couldn't contain himself? Or did he actually want also to get part of the um, prestige by being her, you know, her brother. So um, it's true that Jane Austen was anonymous, but she, but, you know, people and people knew who she was, you know, um, so we can call that, I suppose, an open secret. And certainly was a secret to the, you know, villagers who watched her walk by. But, um, you know, literary people knew exactly who she was. And I think she kind of she kind of dug that, I, I think. She, she dug the distance as well as the modest celebrity, you know, uh, that she had. But that had to be managed once she, she died because it wasn't right for, you know, women to be commercially successful. And, um, you know, your list of questions referred to the, you know, the sort of uh, myth about Jane Austen being, you know, never just just an amateur pastime. I just do this a little here and there. <laughs> you know, I really care about my nieces and nephews. You know, she and not really caring about money. She she you know wrote down exactly how much money every book was um you know was was making. She liked being an author. That's I do not believe I'm fictionalizing here. I think she. She was knocking him off one after another. Imagine had she just lived 10 more years. What uh, what the history of the 19th century novel would be like. That's so sad. We just were talking to a Bronte scholar too. Like, my mom dying so young. I know. And she had, you know, brothers who kept on living and living and living. And, uh, and, and Cassandra lived to a ripe old age. I actually forget the date that she died, but she, you know, she 
lived well beyond the 41 years Austin possessed when she, you know, when she, when she died. I find it so interesting that people think of her as a kind of old spinster. And she was 41. Yeah, I'm 39. An unwed. I have no prospect. <laughs> but I, I see you there with a smile on your face, digging your job. I have a long-term partner. But I'm just saying, I also, I was like, as a podcaster, I have the same kind of celebrity. No one recognizes me, but I'm like, oh, Jane Austen would have loved being a podcaster. <laughs> That's probably true. <laughs> what do you think, Ariana? Do you think? Oh, She's so precise with her language, though, you know, like the prospect of just having to say something and then it being out in the world. That's interesting. Um, One wonders, you know, we don't really have the manuscripts, you know, once you got something published, you you kind of threw it away, um, we assume. Um, But you wonder how much revising did she do? You know, there's a myth sort of that it came came off of her pen, you know, naturally, sort of like Mozart. You just, you don't even compose, you just write it down. <laughs> Do you know what? <laughs> you know? While playing billiards. <laughs> exactly. Um, I'm not sure. She probably, um, she probably was pretty well. Things probably did come out pretty cleanly but we do have a canceled chapter from from uh, persuasion that has a lot of uh you know a lot of interlineation and um so she 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 worked harder than it might seem as did mozart (laughs) well we've reached the end of our hour and this has been such a delight i mean your students are so lucky (laughs) It's, it, it has been fun. I, do, I just love talking to you guys, and it's such a privilege to to talk about uh, about Jane. <laughs>